Well, last time, we ended our study of the Gospel of Matthew with the story of Matthew himself being called by Jesus to follow him. And if you've been following along, hopefully you remember that. Matthew then hosted this dinner party at his house to introduce his family and his friends to Jesus and to celebrate his new life as a follower of Jesus. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who were watching all of these things taking place, though they didn't like what they were seeing. Matthew was a tax collector, one of the most despicable occupations in Israel at the time. Tax collecting was seen as little more than legalized thievery as far as most of the people were concerned. Tax collectors were Jews who worked for the despised Roman government to collect taxes from their own countrymen. And these tax collectors were known for charging taxes far in excess of what their Romans even required and then pocketing that extra money for themselves. Most of Matthew's friends were also tax collectors and other kinds of people with bad reputations. And here's Jesus at this party, eating with all of them, the kind of people that proper folks didn't hang around. The religious leaders, they wanted to know why Jesus is eating with these tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them saying, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus actively sought out relationships with people who need him. He still does that. He actively seeks out relationships with people who need him, people who are broken and damaged and lost and confused and sinful and in bondage to stuff, people who need a Savior, people who need a new life, people like you and me. He didn't isolate himself from the fallen world of humanity and said he got right in the middle of it. Well, today the story of Jesus continues along a similar theme. Following this question about the kind of company that Jesus was keeping, the level of commitment that he and his followers have to God is questioned. Jesus and his disciples weren't behaving in the same way that other devout people of the day were behaving. In a sense, Jesus' followers were having way too much fun. Fun. Now that's not a word that is associated with religious devotion very much, is it? Instead, a religiously devout person is more often thought to be one who is carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, burdened with the troubles of humanity, and preoccupied with the personal denial of worldly passions. When I use the word fun, though, I don't mean it in the sense of frivolous and foolish and treating everything as a joke. Instead, I mean it in its best way of fullness and joy, of peace and freedom, of smiles and deep belly laughs in response to the goodness of the Lord. Jesus said he came to give us a rich and satisfying life, to give us rest from our burdens, to turn our sorrows into joy, to fill our life with hope, 
And that all translates into fun in the best way, doesn't it? The very devout of the Jews had developed a complex religious system that they built on top of the law that God had given to them through Moses, which they followed with great dedication. This system provided detailed interpretation and application of the law of God for virtually every situation that a person might encounter in life. The original intent was good. It was to help people understand the Word of God and follow it in every instance of their lives to what they would say to build a fence around the Word of God so that it would not be impinged upon. For example, the law of God said to keep the Sabbath holy to the Lord and do not do any work on that day. So the Jewish rabbis then defined in great detail what activities and how much of those activities were considered work so that the Jewish people would not break the commandment. Unfortunately, the resulting system became this complicated, heavy burden for people. They had replaced the law of God with their own set of rules. They lost sight of the original intent of God's law. The spirit of the law was lost in the letter of the law. A similar thing can happen in Christianity. Well-intentioned people desiring to follow God begin to impose begin to impose upon themselves and others restrictions that they believe will help them to not sin. But after a while, these self-imposed restrictions, they begin to have a life of their own, becoming more important to follow than the Word of God itself. People begin to confuse what God actually requires with what they have made into a requirement themselves. They start to forget that God accepts us based on His great love for us and what Christ has done for us, rather than based on how well we follow a set of rules. The relationship is replaced by a joyless life whose focus is on sin avoidance. There's a constant pull on us to go back to a system based on human effort and accomplishment rather than simple trust in the grace of God given to us in Christ. Paul, he talked to believers in the letter of Galatians about that, over in Galatians chapter 3. I mean, the whole letter of Galatians is about this topic, but Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes here, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh or by means of human effort? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? 
So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If our salvation depends on ourself, then we are doomed because we are not able to carry that kind of load. As I've said before, none of us can be good enough long enough. Only the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, has what it takes to save us. See, for the true Christian, there's a new life created inside which has the same nature as Jesus. Evidence of this new life will be seen in a person's behavior as the Holy Spirit grows the life of Christ in them. Now that is a very different thing than a person simply making a determined decision to reform their behavior and then going about doing that as best as they can. On the outside, those two might look the same, but they are fundamentally different. One is a work of God in us that finds external expression. The other is a work of our own that leaves our internal self untouched by God and we remain alienated from Him. One is a whole new life coming forth. The other is like the proverbial cartoon where the guy is trying to plug the leaks in the dam with his fingers And new leaks keep springing up, and he is quickly running out of fingers to plug holes. In the gospel of Christ, our old self dies and is replaced by the new life of Christ born in us. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Flip over to Matthew chapter 9. Verse 14. It says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? A little history and background on fasting. In the law that the Lord gave to the Jewish people through Moses, only one day of fasting was required. One day. The fast on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a special day set aside each year for cleansing from sin in the Jewish religion. Fasting on that day was an act of repentance and sorrow for their sins in preparation for receiving atonement. Now, after the Babylonian exile, four additional annual fasts were observed by the Jews. These fasts were not required by God. They were fast that the people made the choice to do themselves. By the time of Jesus, where we're reading here in the Gospel of Matthew, some of the Jews, such as the Pharisees, fasted twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday. And again. 
These were not required by the law of God. They were self-imposed. Think about that. What a testimony to humanity's foolish attempts to justify themselves before God and earn his favor. God required them to fast one day a year. These people developed an institution that has them fasting on 105 days a year. These people had taken the law of God and made it into a heavy burden for themselves and others. Did all that fasting draw these people closer to God? Did it make them better human beings? Not necessarily. In some cases, it helped to fill them with self-righteousness and pride about their devotion. Now, fasting is not a bad thing. Jesus himself fasted for 40 days in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, you might remember. And earlier in Matthew 6, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us some instructions about fasting. We read of early believers in the book of Acts fasting at times when seeking the Lord. Jesus will suggest in the next verse that a time was coming when his disciples would fast. Fasting itself is not the issue. I want us to see that there is only one fast day that the Lord commanded the Jewish people to observe. All of these other fasts are self-imposed. Jesus is asked why his disciples don't fast like the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. What's being questioned here is the religious devotion and commitment of Jesus and his followers. Your followers don't seem to be as serious about God as these other people. You and your followers, they appear to be taking the easy way out in regards to your religious observances. Why is that, Jesus? It's interesting to note that here in Matthew's telling of this story, he says that it's the disciples of John the Baptist who are asking this question about the lack of fasting on the part of Jesus' disciples. Now, in Luke's telling of the story, it's the religious leaders who are asking the question. And in Mark's telling of the story, some people are asking the question. I think what we can conclude is that virtually everyone is asking this question. Jesus is causing everyone to ask the same question. He is still doing that. Even after some 2,000 years, people are still having trouble figuring Jesus out. He's not quite like anyone else who's ever walked this planet. He causes all of us to rethink and reevaluate what we think we know about life. So yeah, I think the religious leaders were wondering about this. John the Baptist's disciples were wondering about this. And actually, everybody 
was wondering about this. Including us. Verse 15, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Jesus answers them in an interesting way. He asks them a question about the appropriate behavior expected at a wedding celebration. Fasting was usually a sign of mourning or remorse and a humbling of oneself before God. A wedding celebration is not the time and place to be doing that. A Jewish wedding at that time was supposed to be a joyous occasion, just like a wedding is supposed to be in our own day. For the close family members and friends to mourn and fast during this time intended to be great joy and festivity would be unthinkable. Can you imagine your own close family members and friends coming to your wedding and instead of celebrating with you, they act depressed and sad. They go around with sad faces, refusing to participate in the festivities, not eating any of the good food at the reception, throwing dirt on their head as a sign of mourning instead of throwing rice on you as a symbol of blessing. You think, what's the matter with you people? Go home. You're ruining my day. (laughs) Jesus himself is the bridegroom. And his disciples are the guests. And it's a time for rejoicing and celebration, not fasting and mourning. The Messiah is in our midst. The Lord is present with us. The hope of the world has come. The fulfillment of the ancient prophecies is taking place. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What possible reason could there be for fasting at a time like that? Only if you didn't recognize the time. In this response, there's an important veiled statement, too, being made by Jesus about who he is. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to possess such a place of of authority that his followers, they don't need to fast because he's with them. Jesus says, they don't need to fast right now because I'm with them. Making a statement like that would be the height of arrogance and self-delusion unless it were true. Sometimes we don't think through the implications of what Jesus said about himself. People will say things like, you know, I believe Jesus was a great teacher, but not the Son of God. But unless Jesus really was the Son of God, going around saying the kinds of things that he did would land him in a padded room or get a collective eye roll from all of us. 
C.S. Lewis made that insightful observation when he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus finishes, though, with a note of impending sadness here, doesn't he? One day in the future, the bridegroom will be taken from them, and at that time, fasting will be appropriate, he says. Jesus is referring to his crucifixion. At that time, his disciples will be sad, but even that sadness will be short-lived and turned to joy at the resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking about that time with his disciples just before it takes place. And he said this to them. He said, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Referring to him being arrested and then crucified. He says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Talking about his resurrection. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. It remains true for the followers of Jesus even today. Jesus is not dead. He's alive, forever interceding for us. And because Jesus has overcome death, we too can look forward to our own resurrection. He is our source of joy, even in the midst of the griefs of this world. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 4.4? 4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Even now, it is not a time of mourning, but of rejoicing. Verse 16 and 17, Jesus continues, he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus tells two short parables here to help bring out the underlying idea that he wants to communicate. The word parable literally means to throw alongside. We get our word parallel from the same Greek root word. So a parable, you can think of it as a story that's thrown alongside to illustrate or explain something. Jesus has been questioned about the people that he spends time with. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. 
He's also been questioned about the apparent lack of religious devotion of his followers. They don't fast like other devout people. Jesus answers them with these parables, essentially saying, there's a new thing happening here. You can't mix the old with the new. They are not compatible with each other. To embrace the new thing that God is doing here, you need to let go of the old way of thinking and doing things. Let's take a look at these parables uh, a little closer for a moment. Verse 16, it says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Now, with modern pre-shrunk and synthetic fabrics that are in common use in our own day, we don't encounter this situation that Jesus is describing here very often. But imagine, going way back, in history. That you have a favorite old garment made out of natural unshrunk wool, which you have washed many times over the years. All of the shrinking that was going to happen to that garment has already happened a long time ago. And one day you pull that favorite garment out of the closet and you discover a hole in it. Without thinking, you grab a patch made of brand new unshrunk wool to sew over the hole in your garment. And when you're done, it looks great. The fabric type is similar, the colors match, the textures match. But then you wash your garment with that new patch on it, and what happens? The patch shrinks and makes a mess of the garment. Or in the case of the example that Jesus gives, the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear even worse than it was. The two fabrics are not compatible with one another. The old and the new can't be mixed together. Verse 17. It says, Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out. And the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. In those days, wine was kept in leather bags called wineskins, usually made of goat skin. And when they put newly made wine into a wineskin, it would still be fermenting. So they would use a new wineskin because it would be soft and pliable and able to stretch and flex as the gas from the fermenting process would continue and it would expand the wineskin vessel. Well, wineskins lose their elasticity as they age. So if you put new wine into an old wineskin, the, the, the gas released from the fermenting of that new wine would break the old wineskin. Old wineskins and new wine, they don't mix. The old wineskin would be ruined and the wine would be spilled out onto the ground. These parables teach that Jesus is something new. He didn't come to merely improve what was already there. He didn't come to merely freshen things up. He didn't come to repair the existing system. He came to do something new. 
the old form of religion of the Pharisees, it can't be mixed with what Jesus is doing. The old way of doing things, the old way of thinking, the old paradigms will not work with this new thing that Jesus is. The old can't be fixed or repaired or freshened up. It just needs to be replaced. In order for them to embrace Jesus, they're going to have to let go of their old understandings and categories and means and methods and assumptions. It all needs to be let go of. The confusion that people were having, asking Jesus questions like, well, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't your disciples fast like other devout people? Why aren't you following the Sabbath rules like everyone else? These questions, they came about because the people were trying to view Jesus through the old lens that they have always used. Jesus is saying, you can't mix these things. You can't use the old models to understand me. I'm not like what has come before. I'm not Moses. I'm not one of the prophets. I'm God the Son. In closing, just to give some application for us on a personal level. To experience Jesus Christ, we can't simply attach him to our life or pour him into our old self. We need to be a new vessel for the new life he gives us. Jesus said we must be born again. Born all over again. It's no good to try to patch up what we already have and what we already are. We need to be made new. Jesus didn't come to repair or to improve the, the, these life-coping systems that we have constructed for ourselves. Jesus is not something that we add on like he's an accessory. Jesus is a brand new thing. And this brand new thing requires that we let go of whatever thing we were holding on to before. And if we don't, if we try to cling to the old stuff and try to just add him on, we won't experience what Jesus is supposed to be for us. He's not an accessory. We don't accessorize our life with Jesus. Even 2,000 years later, Jesus remains a brand new thing. He's not like anything else who's ever been or ever will be. Jesus Christ is unique. There's only one. God has broken into our reality in the person of Jesus Christ once in all of human history, God the Son was born a human being, walked among us, died for us, came back to life on the third day, and now lives forever to intercede for us and give us eternal life. We can't be saved by following a set of rules. We can't 
find life by following a set of rules. We can't do enough to earn our way into God's good graces. We can't achieve entrance into His kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it's counterintuitive to the way that the natural human mind thinks about these things. Jesus said He came to give us life, a new life. He's the new wine that is life and vitality. And he invites us to come to him, put our trust in him, and he will put his new life in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Let's pray. Lord, even as we read these parables in this passage today and we talk about it, it still <laughs> remains just a, a confounding truth for us to get hold of. You are brand new and you want to make us brand new. Lord, help us as we continually are pulled on to go back to this merit system. And instead, let us embrace this new covenant, this new relationship that you have created for us. Help us to embrace you, Jesus, fully. To trust you. To walk with you. Allow you, Holy Spirit, to change us and continue to grow this new life in us. Be glorified in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.